Hello, and welcome to the first edition of TU Music, the campus podcast for music production brought to you by the students at MSP 3771. Our producers today are Juwan and Brandon. I'm Alex, and today we are streaming live from Studio G in Annenberg Hall. Joining me at the microphone is my co-host, Miller. Take it away, Miller. Thanks, Alex. We have a lot to cover this semester, including a spotlight on Bell Tower Music, a new audiobook, interviews, and a roundtable discussion. Let's make spring 2020 a semester where we explore current trends in music production at Temple University. Now we wanted to tell you about Bell Tower Music. It's Temple University's student-run record label. They are committed to fostering musical artists in the Temple and Philadelphia community. They operate primarily through the undergraduate capstone course, MSP 4687, Recording Industry Practicum. Through the class, they learn to produce albums and EPs for Temple artists and create a live in-studio TV program, Live from Studio G, available on their YouTube channel and broadcast by TUTV. They also produce the Bell Tower podcast and an intimate monthly live performance on campus at Sage Cafe. One session at the Sage Cafe happened recently with the energetic R&B jazz group Rubber playing in the summer of 2019. The project Rubber was developed by Andrew Loper and John Delafranco and was formed during their time studying at Temple University in 2017. Rubber is just one of the many projects in a collective that have been produced by Bell Tower Records, with a number being featured on 88.5 WXPN. Another artist represented are K.J. Lassiter and Eddie Madrid from Ambler and Willow Grove, right outside of Philadelphia, inspired by the likes of Drake, Childish Gambino, Kanye West, and countless others growing up. K.J. and Eddie create music that is both versatile and appealing to a wide range of audiences. Together with Bell Tower Music, they recently presented their first debut project, When Summer Falls. When they aren't producing music, they're promoting it. The team updates the website every semester to showcase the acts featured on their student-run label, and they run a podcast on SoundCloud where they talk about new releases, big announcements, and rising stars in the Philadelphia music scene, both on the label as well as in the community. If you have a passion for music or a desire to connect with the local scene, check out Bell Tower Music. Grammys, Grammys, Grammys. They were this Sunday. Alex, did you catch the Grammys? Oh, yeah. Stayed up all night, made some microwave corn, didn't change clothes all day, saw the whole thing. Sounds like you liked them. Uh, did you catch them. the Temple University nomination? You know what? I missed that when I got up to use the bathroom and I didn't have a seat villa to fill me in when I got back. But I heard they won, well, didn't win, but got nominated for two Grammys. Two. Not one, but two. Temple's very own Boyer College of Music and Dance was nominated in the Best Instrumental Composition and Best Arrangement or Acapella categories. I walk by that building every day, man. It's crazy to think that, you know, somebody local actually made it all the way to Hollywood. Absolutely wild. I mean, more than 90 musicians came together and they played a piece called Love a Beautiful Force, which was written by six-time Grammy Award-winning composer and arranger Vince Mendoza. You know what else is a beautiful force? Constant Renaissance, and it's a new work featuring trumpeter Terrell Stafford and an alto saxophonist Dick Oates. Wow. That's a beautiful they're, force. They're part of the uh, Temple Jazz Band, and they were the ones who... Got those double nominations. Man, I would have loved to be nominated for a Grammy, but I think it's out of my career path at this point. Well, it's too bad they lost to uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge Symphonic Suite, but, you know, what does uh, Spielberg and well, Associates yeah, not sweep it's every hard year anyway? It's hard to compete with Star Wars. Disney. They're Can't a die. huge juggernaut. Won't let it go. Yeah. 
So I heard you talking about something in there about a, uh, a seat saver. What's a, what is a seat saver? Yeah, I wish I had one of those at home, but, you know, apparently they're pretty disposable on the West Coast. Uh, so a British seat felt filler was mistaken for Billy Eilish's grandfather at the Grammys. Her grandfather? Yeah, some old guy from the UK. Apparently there's some sort of raffle where uh, you can win a seat at the Grammys just filling in for famous people because... You look famous. I would I would love that. I would get dressed up. I'd pretend to be someone famous. Yeah, I'd see if I could, you know, get a good seat, you know, like next to Madonna or something. Yeah, I mean, so people were getting tricked by this British grandfather, or not grandfather. They thought he was the grandfather of Billie Eilish. Yeah, Terry George is just some lucky guy from Leeds. Wow. What a, what a story. Good 15 minutes of fame for for that guy. <laughs> In an unfortunately somber moment for the Grammys, uh, at the end of Lizzo's performance of her songs Cause I Love You and Truth Hurts, she declared, Tonight is for Kobe. Lizzo was followed by Alicia Keys, the show's host, who took a moment as the ceremony got underway to reflect on the Bryant family. Yeah, man, it was a sad day. Um, Alicia Keys also collaborated with Boys to Men and they sung it so hard to say goodbye. And um, the event was in the Staples Center, so that made it even more, you know, uh, memorable and appreciative because Kobe was a Laker, obviously, and mm -hmm. he was one of the greatest ever played. So right. RP to Kobe Bryant. Uh, more coming up soon about the, uh, the Kobe helicopter incident on TU Sports. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to TU Music. I'm your host, Billy Cobb. Imagine you are an independent artist whose song just blew up with millions of streams and you've reached the goal of being offered a record deal. The catch? You lose your creative ability and royalties to your own content. This scenario is a reality for many artists. In our case, we follow the experience of Wilbur Smith, an independent singer and songwriter who has been creating music for nine years. In 2015, Wilbur had it all. His music gained traction online after releasing an indie pop song about a grease fire burning down half of his apartment complex called Holy Shit My Apartment Is On Fire. This song gained over 15 million streams after becoming a meme on the social media phenomenon TikTok, and immediately following its success, Wilbur could see bright things ahead, and not just through the singed hole in his apartment ceiling. About a month or so after his blowout hit, Wilbur received an email from a major record producer in the industry. He told Wilbur that he loved his track. Wilbur froze with excitement, as it's most independent artist's dreams to be signed by a major label. Wilbur unhesitantly replied to stating his interest in the deal and would love to meet soon. Wilbur could feel his life fitting together perfectly, and he was hopeful for the future. Little did he know the web he would soon be tangled in. Wilbur and his meetings started well. It seemed very welcoming and promising, and Wilbur could immediately feel a strong bond between the two. After a plethora of chatting, had handed Wilbur a contract. Wilbur isn't a dumb guy. He skimmed through the contract and read some of the biggest and seemingly most important parts of the contract. Like most people, however, he did not see the fine print written in small font in the middle of the contract, which stated that 73% or more of the revenue collected by his album sales would go straight to the label, 
and Wilbur would be getting a rather small percentage of his royalties. A few months passed, and Wilbur has had a lot of the success that he dreamed of. He had played sold-out stadium shows, has made multi-million dollar video productions, and has sold millions of records. At first, Wilbur's finances seemed just fine while he was touring, but after the tour, he started to notice something odd. The money he thought he was generating from his record sales was almost non-existent, and most of his money was coming from touring. He wondered why this was and confronted about the situation. Now having a more devilish demeanor than their first impression together, looked him straight in the eye and said, You should have read the fine print. Wilbur was so excited for this opportunity. He was so ecstatic, and we were happy that he finally got the recognition that he deserved. After his tour, though, he seemed to spiral. He hadn't even begun to live lavishly. He just didn't have enough money to keep up with rent, and went around asking friends for some financial support. This confused all of us because we thought this was his big break. Why would he need to keep begging for money? Suddenly, Wilbur felt cheated. He wasn't even sure if he wanted to do this anymore. But of course, his contract involves him releasing at least five albums with the record company. On top of that, Wilbur felt as if he didn't have the creativity he once had, as the label made him create songs that were more radio-friendly and accessible, as well as being awfully similar to his other hits. Wilbur is now caught in the web of the music industry, and sadly, this is a hard reality for a lot of artists in Wilbur's situation. The story you just heard was completely fictional, but it isn't far from the truth. Independent artists do get screwed over when signing to record deals, and it has been occasionally proven that independent artists actually end up making more money releasing music themselves than they would be while being signed to the label. According to AWOL.com, it is common for artists to receive only 15% of their music revenue from sales, and now, Less and less independent artists are deciding to go with record deals, and instead prefer being on their own. A big story around this recently came out involving a controversy regarding pop star Khalees, and how major record producer and pop star Pharrell Williams stole all of the money from her album sales after she signed a deal with them. This goes to show that Wilbur's case, while fictional, isn't so far from reality at all. This is a thing that happens, and it's shaping the music industry as we know it. So keep in mind, the next time your SoundCloud song goes viral and becomes a hit, to be weary of record labels, as they just might not be the big break that you've been waiting for. We'll be right back with more music-related content when TU Music returns. This is an excerpt from Patti Smith's book, Year of the Monkey, published in late 2019, by Penguin Random House. Chapter 2, ICU, will be narrated by Nicholas Palumba. The traffic was light re-entering San Francisco. My room at the Miato Hotel wasn't ready, so I passed through two internal malls and ate at On the Bridge. Everything was just as it had been only weeks before, though I missed Lenny's reassuring presence. The cook made me flying fish roe spaghetti. Anime clips from Dragon Ball were looping on the TV screens. I found myself plowing through trajectory of manga, flipping backwards through Death Note 7. Trying to make sense of the graphics. A black menace hovering over the boy light, sifting through pages of intermittent numerical sequences. My spaghetti was gone. I hardly recall eating it. The check was dated February 1st. Where had January flown? I made a list of things I should have been doing. 
I'll do them soon, I told myself, but first thing in the morning, I would go to the hospital where Sandy remained unconscious in the intensive care unit. In spite of that fact, I stopped at a small shop and bought him some sweets made with red bean paste. Sandy loves such things, fan-shaped bits of heaven. I turned in early. There was nothing on TV. I imagined I was in Kyoto, which wasn't hard as the hotel bed was close to the floor, next to a rice paper lamp and a tableau of gray scale pebbles studiously arranged in a bamboo sandbox. There was a candy-striped pencil on the nightstand. I'm not so sleepy, I told myself. I should get up and write, but I didn't. In the end, I wrote the words that are here. Even as the whole other set of words slipped away, alphabeting the ether, taunting me in my sleep. You don't follow plush, you negotiate them. Manga guidance, a repetitive mantra melding with my own thoughts. The pencil seemed far away, well beyond my grasp, and I actually watched myself fall asleep. The clouds were pink and dropped from the sky. I was wearing sandals, kicking through mounds of red leaves surrounding a shrine on a small hill. There was a small cemetery with rows of monkey deities, some adorned with red capes and knitted caps. Massive crows were picking through the drying leaves. It doesn't mean anything, someone was shouting, and that was all I could remember. In the morning, I arranged transportation to the hospital in Marring County, helped by mutual friends who had taken it upon themselves to tend to Sandy. With no living family, the task was left to this small devoted circle who knew and loved him. I re-entered the ICU. Nothing had changed since my last visit with Lenny. The doctor seemed to have little hope of Sandy regaining consciousness. I circled his bed. A hospital chart was tacked to the foot. His middle name was Clark. My son was born on his birthday, a fact I had somehow forgotten. I stood there scrambling for the right thoughts, ones that could permeate the coma's thick veil. I had flashes of Arthur Lee in prison, little red books spread out like packs of cards. I could see Sandy falling in slow motion in a parking lot near an ATM. I could almost hear him thinking, Convalescence. Latin. 15th century. I stayed for her as long as I could, doing my best to suppress my intense phobia of tubes, syringes, and the artificial silence of hospital settings. I shuttled back and forth from hotel to hospital. The medicinal smells and rubber-soled entrances of the nurses with clipboards and plastic bags of fluids unnerved me as I sat beside desperately searching for a way in, some connective channel. On my last day, though visiting hours had ended, no one instructed me to leave, so I stayed until nightfall. I found myself projecting constellations of words onto his white sheets, an endless jumble of phrases streaming from the mouths of miraculous totems lining an inaccessible horizon. Medea and monkey gods and kids and candy wrappers. What do you make of it, Sandy? I probed silently. Machines pulsing, saline solution dripping. Sandy squeezed my hand, but the nurse said it didn't mean anything. You're listening to Mo Meta Blues by Amir Questlove Thompson and Ben Greeman. It was published in 2015 by Grand Central Publishing. This is Chapter 8. I'm Brandon Augustine. So what happened with Jazz 90? Well, the station was WRTI. It was Temple University's public radio station, which had an all-jazz format. Its location on the dial was 90.1, so sometimes peeps called it the point. Deep, huh? Or simply Jazz 90. My show didn't have a handle, it just sort of was. It was an avant-learning, stream-of-consciousness, jazz-traditioning, sleight-of-hand thing. The music director at the time was Steve Rowland, a tall, affable, intellectual Jewish guy who people would consistently mistake as a light-skinned black dude. Three slots had just opened, and he recruited me, the visual artist Homer Jackson, and Ludwig Van Tricht. 
believe it or not, Ludwig was black. His pop was from Suriname, and Ludwig looked like Alexander Dumas, or maybe like a black Count of Monte Cristo or some shit. But he was a real dude, and fellow admirer of jazz avant-garde. Homer was still in art school, sported a ragged, deconstructed afro, and could often be found going off the top about Gabby Marquez, or Marquis de Sade, or Foucault, or Fanon, or the like. There was also Miyoshi Smith, who, while not an on-the-air person, was every bit a member of our collective. Maybe more so than us, even. So, that was my inside-outside crew. Our mission to rage against the machinations of conventional wisdom and culture. Ironically, conventional wisdom and culture raged against us. I quit the station in 1990, the crew's last man out, dead man walking. The dude from the Midwest took over and showed us how they got down in Missouri. He had everything programmed by computer, and he told us that I had to follow the computer. I'm not going to do that, I said, which... He seemed to take well for a little while, but then he started telling me that I had to vary my show. Mine was a real DJ-driven show. If I wanted to play only Cecil Taylor for from 12 to 12.28 on a Sunday, I would. He wanted me to do more programming. And I remember he had only one question for me, which was, if you have to play Mel Torm in a specific time slot, would you play it? My answer was no. I'm not going to fucking play it. I'll play Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross as a one-off, but that's about as far as I'm going to fucking go. What's the point in being here if you have to follow a computer? What is this? A fucking Turing test in reverse? So you left? I left, and pretty soon I started hanging out with Joe Simmons, who was over at WKDU. Jazz had seen its better days, and now hip-hop was all grown up and shit. One night, Joe went to a talent show at Prince's Lounge. He came back and told me that there was something interesting there. A drummer, an upright bass player, and a guy rapping. The guy on the bass played the Inspector Gadget theme. He was excited by them, and the way he talked about them piqued my interest. A month later, he invited me to come with them to a local spot called the Chestnut Cabaret to see these wonderkins, and... So we went, but the affectless black electric bassist who was there was clearly not inspired white acoustic guy Joe had described. The vocalist was spitting some rappering shit, railing against crisscross of all fucking groups. I remember the chorus was, don't jump, don't jump, don't jump. Jeez. If the shit wasn't so absurd, I would have simply been disappointed. As it stood, I was mildly amused. We came backstage, I remember. To explain to me and to Joe that the bassist wasn't your regular guy, that he was off at college and we would be back on break in October... On the way home, I asked Joe, um, are you sure these guys are cool? He was sure, and I decided we might as well record a song. I had a relationship with the studio. If the square sucked, I would have simply wasted 150 bucks. So then the three of you came to the studio in the suburbs of Ben Salem. There were two songs, Anti-Circle and Pass the Popcorn, along with a Pass the Popcorn remix. It wasn't rocket science. We recorded it and added a keyboard overdub. And I remember thinking to myself, these motherfuckers are all right. It was different, not quite there, but nonetheless approaching inspired. And we went the next day and mixed it. And then Tariq asked you to manage us? No, that was months and months later. 
but I do remember him asking me some point-blank shit. I was driving him home after the mix, and like it was directed to no one in particular, he said, I heard about you. We've worked with a bunch of rappers. I didn't bother to respond. It felt like a setup. Then he blurted out, we're the best damn group you ever worked with, aren't we? At first, I was a little thrown off by his blatant hubris, but after I thought about it for a couple seconds, I said, yeah, you guys are the best, but at best, that's a dubious distinction. Things evolved from there, and there were shows and shows that begot other shows that begot other shows. I liked the early recordings, but the peeps that I let hear the shit were fairly dismissive, and the whole dubious dis distinction thing seemed firmly in effect. The show, on the other hand, was frenetic, a revisionist yet progressive affair. At once, homage and karaoke. It had this proto-hip-hop review thing that was consistently working. Even the patrons who initially looked askance at the band ended the set as part of the nod factor. And what was success anyway? In many ways, it was still using jazz avant-garde model as an approach to financial success on the fringe. As a younger man, I used to help out with concerts in the Philly area. My job, among other things, was to drive to New York and pick up the artists. I remember going to get Lester Bowie. He lived in a nice place. His floors were shellacked. They had African sculpture. His wife had a minivan. I would see Lester playing at the empty foxhole, and there would be maybe 30 people in there smoking reefer, and somehow he managed to get enough money to keep a wife in a minivan. That was my entire sense of things at that point. I never thought the Roots would really get on the radio, at least not then, and now not ever. Industry types thought the Roots brand to be some unstructured freestyle-based shit. All hard on empty sleeves, it didn't matter to me, really. Well, maybe it really did. I still dug it because I knew there was something there, even if it was an afterthought. So you knew that we were... You know what? I, I've said too much. About what? About my own life. If you don't want this to be a straightforward account of your life, I'm sure as fuck that no one wants to buy any account of mine. So you're just going to leave the book? No, keep going, but I'm tired of being here in bold type like this. It's too straightforward when I want to be coming from the blind spot. It's too flat-footed when I want to be arc. Living Like a Runaway is written by Lita Ford and published in 2016 by HarperCollins Books. The narrators in order of speaking are Jennifer Rostowitz, Jordan Hallerman, and Miller Michaud. The Asylum. We move to the Bermuda Triangle, literally and metaphorically. More precisely, Turks and Caicos, a chain of islands that's approximately 700 miles off the coast of Miami. For the first year and a half, we lived on the main island, Providential is called Provo by the locals, where the population is about 10,000 people. In that time, we moved our household six times. Provo at least had a few resorts, a school, a grocery store, a doctor, that is, some signs of life. My first order of business was to get James into school. He knew his basic school skills, and I had already taught him how to write, but I wanted to get him into a school so he could make friends. James went to Ashcroft School for first grade and the first half of second grade. It was filthy. When James would come home from school, we had this huge container where he would dump the dirt from his shoes just to see how much he would collect. 
His fingernails would be dirty, and his face would be beet red from the heat. How does a child focus on doing schoolwork in this kind of heat? I went to school one day to see how James was doing, and I didn't recognize him because of how red his face was. I asked if the school had fans, and they said no. They would do physical education at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the hottest time of the day. I tried to get them to change the time of the class, but they wouldn't do that either. I started pulling him out of school for the afternoons, since all he would be missing is running laps around the school for an hour in the hottest sun of the day. My husband became interested in purchasing a deserted stretch of oceanfront property in North Caicos. An underdeveloped island 12 miles from Pravo. Was it beautiful? Sure. But there was almost nothing there but mosquitoes, flamingos, crabs, cockroaches, island rats, and bushes. The mosquitoes were turbocharged like jumbo jets. There was no water, electricity, roads, medical facilities, mailboxes, FedEx, restaurants, grocery stores. Forget Walmart or Starbucks. It was all sugary white sandy beaches and mangroves where the hammerhead sharks gave birth to their young. They were indeed healthy ocean waters, but the beach was a dissolute of a place, as you could imagine. If you need help, think of Robinson Crusoe or Castaway. It would have been wonderful for two weeks out of every summer, but it was not where I wanted to raise the boys. On the stretch of coastline, there was nothing. No children to play with, no normal human society or culture. The only hint of civilization nearby was a small community of shacks in the middle of the island and one shitty, broken-down school that was a 30-minute drive on a poorly maintained road. There was no computers or air conditioning. On a Caribbean island, it is too unbearably hot for there to be no air conditioning or even ceiling fans. Our house was bigger than the school was. What kind of credentials did the teachers have? I would have to die before I let James, and eventually Rocco, rely on this place for their education. Meanwhile, construction began on our new home, actually two mansions right next to each other. My husband and the new Pier Giovanni family, his Jehovah Witness business partner, who would become our next-door neighbors in North Caicos, employed more than 100 Haitians and belongers, as the locals were called. One house would be ours, and the others would be the Pier Giovannis. The Pier Giovannis did most of the manual labor. They were big lumberjack-style people who lived their lives studying the Bible and building. Not my type of hang. I didn't go to see what they were doing until the foundations had already been poured for these two massive three-level mansions. When the boat pulled up to the property, I almost passed out. I was under the impression we would have at least some privacy in this godforsaken place. Nope, the two foundations were poured not more than 40 feet away from each other. Oh, great, I said to my neighbor. We'll be able to pass each other the oregano. I was not happy. I think the feeling was mutual. The devout Pier Giovanni's probably thought I was the Antichrist because I was a rocker chick. Well, that doesn't make me bad, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not antisocial either. I just didn't understand the logic of living 40 feet away from anyone when there is an entire fucking island at their disposal. It defeated the whole purpose for moving to such an out-of-the-way place. Needless to say, I dreaded the day when I had to move into that house, but the foundation was already poured. While the homes were being built, I heard that Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister was on the main island at one of the resorts with his family. We had a rental there where we were living in while we waited to relocate to North Caicos. I'd known Dee since 1984 when Twisted Sister played with the Lita Ford band. 
They were so supportive of a chick on guitar, and they'd always be cheering me on. D as a frontman was just incredible, packed full of energy with a terrific voice and equally great attitude. He was also a very loyal husband and father, and I loved that about him. I felt like he was a big brother to me, looking out for me and offering words of advice and encouragement. I thought D and his wife Suzette might like to meet my boys, who were growing up so beautifully. I also couldn't wait to see a familiar face. It was a thrill. The Snyders and my family became friends immediately. D has a daughter who is the same age as James, and they got along well. They were both little rocker kids. D's daughter wanted to be a lead singer like her father, and James wanted to play guitar like me. To anyone who saw me or talked to me, it looked like I had one big happy family. I firmly hid the fact that I was miserable living in such an isolated, dirty, and lonely place, away from everyone and everything I had once known. We took Dee and Suzette over to show them our future outpost on North Caicos, which by this time had all three levels in place. We went up to the top floor of the house, where they had a view of nothing but ocean as far as the eye could see. Not even a single boat cruising by. It was breathtaking. But also, you could sense the isolation. I looked at Dee's face, and you could tell what he was thinking. How was Lita going to last year with the boys? No school, no doctors, no friends, no music. Dee seemed to be a little in shock. Okay, he kept saying in between deep breaths. Okay. I felt sad, but hey, it sure was a pretty view. The next morning, we said our goodbyes to Dee and his family. He returned to the world I had left behind while I awaited sentencing on Alcatraz, a.k.a. North Caicos. It took two years to finish both houses. They were built like a bank vault or a prison cell, depending on your perspective. According to the contractors, our mansion could withstand 450 mile per hour winds. It was cold inside with granite floors and countertops. To me, it looked like an asylum with balconies. I was scared to death to move to North Caicos for many reasons. It was even more remote than Provo. My children's well-being concerned me the most. There was only one doctor on the main island in Provo. He was the guy you went to if you had the flu or a bad cut. But if you needed an emergency attention, you had to be airlifted into Miami. Moving to North Caicos would make urgent medical treatment even more of an issue. Risking my personal well-being was one thing, but when you've got two young kids, that's not a chance any mother wants to take. I went so far as to stock up on EpiPens, antibiotics, and other first aid items. Because we would be living in such a remote place, I needed some kind of reassurance, no matter how small, that I could buy 20 to 30 minutes of time in case something happened to us, like a shark bite or a boating accident. I also had a tutor set up for the kids on North Caicos. When the day rolled around for her to come over for the first visit, though, she never showed. Later that afternoon, she called and apologized, explaining that her car had broken down. This was not unusual since the roads were so bad. She said she would be there at the same time the following day, but again, she didn't show up. She was my only chance at finding a tutor on North Caicos that would teach second grade, and she proved to be unreliable. Finally, that good old saying came to mind again. If you want something done right, do it yourself. So I decided to homeschool the boys myself. I had no choice but to put them through the Lita Ford school. Still, I was livid, and this was not my idea of life, and I had no clue where to start. I had been in a rock band since I was 16 years old. I wasn't a teacher. No one had hated school more than me. There was no school supplies on the island or books of any kind, and more importantly, I wanted the kids to have friends of their own age and be in school for that reason. I started doing my research, trying to figure out how the hell I was going to make this work. 
I finally found a respected curriculum on the main island, the Calvert School from Canada, that I really liked. It made learning fun and it was the easiest to understand. If this was going to be our reality, I wanted it to be fun and educational for the boys as possible. Homeschooling was life-changing for me. As it turned out, it brought me even closer to my kids. Every morning, my sons and I, and the dogs, would get up and walk to the beach. The boys would run, swim, exercise, and hunt for shells. I remember looking at their little footprints in the sand. My kids' footprints and mine were the only ones on the beach, and that's how deserted it was. They'd find some conch shells as big as basketballs. We'd head back to the house, and the boys would jump into the pool to rinse off the sand and salt from the beach. Then we'd have breakfast. I'd make a fresh homemade breakfast of eggs, waffles from fresh ground wheat or French toast, a breakfast fit for a king, and then we would go to work on school. James, Rocco, and I would set a huge antique round table and do schoolwork every morning. I taught James his times tables, how to read, and how to write cursive and print words. I would put on an educational CD for Rocco to keep him occupied while I taught James, and then we'd switch. I was teaching two different grades at the same time, and it was hard work. After lunch, we went back to work again till about three or four hours in the afternoon before heading out to go fishing. I had taught the boys to fish the same way my father had taught me. At night before bed, we would read dictionaries and encyclopedias. James would also read storybooks to Rocco and me. We had all the Dr. Seuss titles and heaps of other books. My favorite book was Are You My Mother? I taught the boys a lot. We would have music lessons too. James recorded his first song at age seven. It was called Destruction, and it was inspired by a particularly messy day in our house after three meals and a full day of activities. Between homeschooling the boys, cooking, making bread, picking vegetables from the garden, and cleaning a five-bedroom, six-bathroom, 10,000-square-foot house filled with sand, I was fucking exhausted. I felt like Cinderella stuck in her wicked stepmother's house. We were living like the fucking Amish. I loved being with the boys, but I felt trapped living in that house and being on that island. I barely watched TV because half the time the satellite was blocked by a massive cloud in the sky and wouldn't work. I didn't keep up with music. At night, I would often fall asleep in the top bunk of James' bed while we were watching a movie. Before dozing off, I'd look out the porthole-shaped window in his room. I'd fix my gaze on the brightest star just like I was as a teenager in the back of that station wagon when the runaways were on tour. There it was. The same star still followed me wherever I went, but I could never really relax. The only joy or pleasure I had during those years on the island was being with my kids. They were my world. I'd lie in bed praying my kids would grow up and live a happy and healthy life, and that they would always be my best friend. Given the isolated life we were living, who else were we supposed to be friends with? I missed the music industry so much, and it made me sad my kids had no connection to the world I loved. For the first time since I'd moved to Florida, I started listening to music again. For fun, I decided to teach James and Rocco about the School of Rock. I started with the first letter of the alphabet. A is for ACDC, or Alice Cooper. B is for Black Sabbath, and so on. We did that for every letter of the alphabet, and the boys would ask me to tell them stories about the bands, since I had met them all at some point in my career. I'd always have something to tell them about the bands we were learning about. I told them about MTV, and how I'd wait all week to watch Don Kirshner's rock concert, wondering, who will the guest of the week be? I'd go online and we would look up the songs for whatever group or artist we were studying and go over all the guitar solos. We had a hell of a lot of fun doing it. I would talk to James about touring, explaining how to warm up for a show, and then how to cool down. I'd tell Rocco about charisma and stage presence. One day, my son James said to me, 
Mom, for everything that happens, you have a song. He was right. Whenever anything happened around the house, I'd sing an appropriate verse or part of whichever song came to mind. Yes, James, I replied. Life is a song. Music makes the world go round. Doing the School of Rock was therapeutic for me, and it was special to share with the boys. But it was a band-aid over a hole in my heart. If music made the world go round, I ached to contribute my note. James and Rocco were introduced to UFC and MMA fighting at the most competitive level possible as they grew older. Seriously, they began practicing the Gracie form of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is regarded by many to be the fiercest school of the martial art, and the most lethal, if used the wrong way. The school's founder, Helio Gracie, insisted that fights should only be decided by submission or loss of consciousness. Does this sound kid-friendly? Well, my family became acquainted with the Gracie family. Their ranks include Rory and Gracie, a co-founder of Ultimate Fighting Championship, and their Miami-based protégés, the Valenti Brothers. According to their own website, GracieMiami.com, the Valenti Brothers is the official representation of Grandmaster Helio Gracie in Florida. Professors Pedro, Guy, and Joaquim Valente started training directly under the Grandmaster at the age of two years old and were his loyal disciples. If language like loyal disciples sounds fanatical to you, I'd say you were probably on the right track. Soon, we were in too deep. In fact, the Valenti brothers were asked to be our boys' godfathers. My stomach got their logo of a triangle chokehold tattooed on his stomach. Yes, I thought it was freaky. I began to fear I was losing my boys to this madness. Grandmaster Helio Gracie, the founder of Gracie Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, is worshipped among Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu enthusiasts. It was a total way of life that extended far beyond the fighting mat, from how you thought to what you ate. Helio Gracie had stomach issues, so he created a restrictive diet to heal himself, which later became well-known and used by Gracie trainers like the Valentes. He called it the Gracie diet. Chocolate or candy was out of the question. Cake, only vanilla, was allowed once a year. If the boys ate chocolate, they got a mark against them in jiu-jitsu, which meant they wouldn't get their belt at the next ceremony. I was thinking, this is crazy. The boys need to be able to have a childhood. Let them eat a fucking M&M. They didn't have any stomach issues, so why would they need to follow the Gracie diet? We bought them a fighting cage and put them in a home gym that was full of exercise equipment. Rowing machine, versa climber, weights, and an inclined rock wall. A child with an 8-pound vest doing this kind of climbing wasn't my idea of healthy exercise. Olympic champion Howard Davis Jr. was hired to teach James and Rocco to box. This is beginning to sound nuts, right? If you have any doubts, type Rocco Giletti into YouTube and see for yourself. There's a video of my precious 7-year-old son sparring with a gold medal winning boxer. It has more than 15,000 views. The boys also were put into Russian judo classes to teach them to kick and learn throws. Believe me, I just wanted them to be children, free to do and act as kids would. Eat chocolate, be carefree, have friends, and be happy and healthy. James and Rocco would end up in tears after each intense workout. They were only little boys. This was something they should not have to stress about night and day. They weren't the only ones too stressed. I did too. I often get asked about the tattoos on my arms, and I've never really had the opportunity to explain why I got them in the first place. I'm sure a lot of people believe they were something I chose to do on my own, without anyone else's input, but that's certainly not the case. The first tattoo I got done was the skull with Gilletti across it, on my left arm. It was a four-hour job. The tattoo artist, Christian, asked me discreetly, You don't really want this tattoo, do you? He could see I was sick to my stomach over it. No, I don't. Do you want me to do it anyway? Yeah. Grin, Barrett, Lita, I thought to myself. In my eyes, Gilletti represented my boys. I was okay with that. That wasn't enough. I ended up with a second tattoo, with the cross and Roman numerals that spell out May 13th, 1994, our wedding anniversary, on my right arm.
My son James was born on May 13th, 1997, so in my eyes, I looked at it as his birthday instead of our anniversary. Over the tailbone of my lower back, I have a tattoo that reads, My Husband. Finally, I broke down and got my husband's first name tattooed down my forearm. I felt like I had been branded. I was becoming a shadow of who I once was. I fell asleep on the couch one night and woke up gasping for air, almost as if I was underwater. It was hard to breathe, and my heart was racing in my chest, like I had just missed a flight. What I really wanted to do was run to the door so I could get outside into the open air, but I would have set off the alarm system. The keypad was in the master bedroom in the closet. I'm trapped, I realized. I never kept alcohol in the house, but we had had some company over that night, a rare occurrence, and they had brought over some red wine, so I poured half a glass, thinking it would ease the anxiety. It didn't. It made my heart pound even faster. Now I was really panicking. I managed to make it to Rocco's room, which was empty because there had been a leak onto the bamboo flooring. It had become moldy and made me worry, so I made him sleep in James's top bunk some nights. This was one of those nights. I sat there from 10 p.m. till about 4 a.m., paralyzed. I wanted to get to a paper and pen to write my children a note. I felt as though I was having a heart attack and was seized with a powerful desire to compose a final message to my children. But I couldn't raise my arms. I thought that if I moved, I would die. All I could think about was my boys. Who's going to take care of them once I'm gone? What's going to happen to them? It wasn't until 10 a.m. that morning that I was able to settle down enough to emerge from the room. I grabbed the Mayo Clinic's Family Health Encyclopedia that I kept around for emergencies and started reading. I wanted to know what had happened to me. I realized I had experienced a panic attack. Living on this island was really starting to destroy me, and the feelings of loneliness, being trapped, and being isolated had taken their toll physically, not just psychologically. What's going to happen to me? It became clear to me, finally. I needed to get away from my marriage and off that damn island. I needed to do something that made me feel like Leah again. I didn't have the answers yet, but I had a mission. I had to save myself and my boys. The first step was to get a toehold back in the United States. I started pushing the idea of buying a house in Miami. The boys frequently were traveling there anyway for jujitsu training. It took me three years, but we finally bought a place in Miami. I thought I was one step closer to freedom, but I was wrong. We would go back and forth between the islands and Miami, but I wanted to figure out a way to keep us in Florida more. James was 11 now and Rocco was 7. I got involved in a school talent show for some friends of ours. I put together the kids to sing We Will Rock You. I hung out in the background and borrowed a gold top Les Paul to play during the show. We named the band Kids Row. I made them costumes and we had a lot of fun. A couple of the boys who James and Rocco did jujitsu with were a part of the group. Each kid had a verse to sing. James had so much fun with the Kids Row project that I decided to buy him the gold top Les Paul I had used for the talent show for his 11th birthday. He showed a natural inclination for playing guitar, and I figured that even if it sat in his room for a while, if he wanted to play it, he could, instead of playing one of Mommy's guitars. Most of my guitars were in storage. Working with the boys on Kids Row spurred my hunger to make music. In 2009, I released a record called Wicked Wonderland, or at least it was packaged as a Lita Ford album. Here's what All Music Guide had to say about it. It's an album with explicit sexual content, examining S&M, bondage, power exchanges, and all manner of kink and crave in lyrics, words, and sleeve images. Ford wrote all of these songs with her co-producer Greg Hampton and Gilletti. Gilletti is also either a duet partner or backing vocalist on every track here. Take a look at the credits list if you want to figure out who had artistic control. As for the S&M, bondage, power exchanges, and all manner of kink, when I look back at photos or video footage from that tour on the internet, it makes me sick to my stomach. All I will say is, this wasn't a Lita Ford album. Let me state for the record, 
I disown Wicked Wonderland. In the months that followed the release of Wicked Wonderland, my husband declared, there's no money in the music industry. He said, if we want to make money, why don't we do a reality TV show? I thought it had the potential to be cool, but we had to be realistic. We needed professional management, unlike the Wicked Wonderland experience. We called Maury Management, who had represented Miley Cyrus. And much to our surprise, they got on a plane and flew to Florida to meet us. I got them pasta and served red wine. We showed them the house and they got to meet our boys. They flew back to Los Angeles and thought that they could work with us. We had a manager. Awesome. They helped us find an agent and we started shopping for a reality show. It took months, but the Gerse agency finally landed us a contract with TLC. They drew up an agreement and sent it to us. The way it was worded bothered me. It didn't say Lita Ford anywhere on the contract. They're signing us because this is Lita Ford's family, not for any other reason. I was confused. A couple months passed and the contract issue still bothered me. I hadn't spoken to our manager since they had been at our house. It pissed me off that I was in the dark about how I was going to be portrayed. I would be damned if I was going to be presented as a broken down Cinderella on national television. I wouldn't let it happen. I needed the truth, and I knew the only way to get it was to find it myself. I told my husband, I'm going to get on a plane to meet the TLC gang. I also want to talk to Jim Morey and Bobby Collin, the company's top executives. When I walked in to meet with the TLC people, they were thrilled to see me. I was shocked because of what I'd been told about them before I left for LA. I sat down with a director from TLC, a couple of the main writers, and the vice president of TLC, and had a great conversation. They had some exciting ideas. Morey Management sent me over to a songwriter so that we could write some songs for the show. We wrote two really great songs. One was going to be the title track of our reality TV show. The kids were also going to make an album as a Jonas Brothers type group. We would have had a reality TV show and the kids would have had their own album. I think that would have been successful. After I made more trips to Los Angeles, I was getting more confident in asserting my independence. It was as if being back in LA had awoken me from a nightmare. The spell was broken, but life's never simple. The path ahead of me would be as dark and challenging as anything that had come before. I made the last two flights to LA by myself. For only the third time in 17 years of marriage, I was alone, without the boys or my husband. When I was in Los Angeles, my cell phone broke. And so I walked into a Sprint store to buy a new phone. And the salesman said, Lita Ford? I said, yes, that's me. It felt good to hear somebody say my real name after so many years of not hearing it. They hooked me up with a brand new phone, listed under my own name. It might sound like a small thing to most people, but it felt like an important step in reclaiming my identity and freedom. For more than a decade, I had done the best I could to endure the way I was living. For more than a decade, I had done the best I could to endure the way I was living, but I knew staying in my marriage would have to be the death of me, emotionally and spiritually. It was time for Lita Ford to return. I flew home to Florida 11 hours earlier than originally scheduled. I landed in Fort Lauderdale, rented a car, drove to my attorney's office, and filed divorce papers. I had bravely crossed the point of no return, but I didn't understand how devastating the fallout would be. What happened next was pure heartbreak. I succeeded in gaining my independence, yet I would lose the most precious part of my life. I paid the ultimate price for my freedom. When I filed for a divorce in 2010, I lost my boys. Suddenly, they would not speak to me or visit me. It was a complete transformation from my social, lively, and colorful boys. Their neighbor, who is a respected attorney, witnessed the change in them, too. She came out of her house one day, said hello, and the boys ran back inside the house. This wasn't some stranger. We used to go to her house often to ride horses and play with their animals. 
Now the boys wouldn't speak to her either. It seemed unreal that the sons I had poured all my love and life into could turn against me. In retrospect, I have a deep sympathy for them. Breaking away from my marriage was the hardest thing I'd ever done, but I was able to draw enough on my own life experience to finally understand the situation I was in wasn't right. My kids were not so lucky. They knew nothing else. In fact, their primary contact with the outside world, extreme martial arts, seemingly reinforced their home environment, proudly promoting the virtue of being loyal disciples. Readers may be interested to learn that control is the third tenet of the Gracie Triangle. By leaving the family, I was now a loyal outsider. It seemed as if I was being shunned. I have chosen not to detail the divorce proceedings here. Ultimately, the only fact that matters is that I became disconnected from my darlings. They hurt me beyond measure. And unfortunately, it seems that if you pay the right attorneys the right amount of money, the courts turn a blind eye and allow parents to be cut out of their children's lives. It's called parental alienation. For a time, I moved into an apartment nearby my boys, hoping to reconnect with them. I had a sleeping bag, a pillow, my suitcase, and my two dogs who slept at my feet. The apartment complex I was staying in was full of kids. Every time one of them would be close by, the dogs would get all excited thinking it was James and Rocco. No one will ever know the emotional pain I experienced. I want James and Rocco, and the rest of the world, to know it's not their fault. They're children. My children. Shortly after I escaped my horrible situation, I wanted to get my soon-to-be ex-husband's name removed from my forearm. I had them black it out because it would have taken two and a half years for them to burn off that name, and I wasn't going to wait. I had waited long enough to escape from my life with him. I let it heal for about three months and then went to get it blacked out again, and this time I had them add the red lining to the Black Widow symbol, as well as the script Black Widow right below it. I had survived a miserable hell, and now I had the battle scars to prove it. Lost and alone, I turned to the only thing that I could give me solace, music. During the divorce proceedings, I had started playing guitar again and writing songs. Working again and doing shows kept me busy and my mind off the horrible things that were going on. I got involved with David Fishoff's Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. It's such a rewarding feeling to get a group of five strangers who have never played together into a room and watch them grow into a band in just four days. Sometimes they come in nervous or scared, but I always remember what Mike Chapman told me in pre-production meeting decades ago when he saw my hand shaking. Lita, if you weren't scared, I'd be nervous, because being scared means you care. To see fans care that much about playing their instruments with me is a humbling experience. Sometimes you get a camper who isn't as cooperative. At one particular camp, I had one girl in my group who came in, sat down, crossed her arms. She looked miserable. I said to her, stand up. I don't want to stand up. Okay, well, we have to write a song, so let's all write a song. She said, I don't want to write a song about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, why are you here, I asked her. I suggested writing a song called Agony, because she looked like she was in agony being here. We got started, and all of a sudden, she started singing and totally sang the shit out of it. The issues she was having in her life at the time made her angry, but I saw her channel all that into our group song. It was so rewarding to see her get off that chair. At one of the rock and roll fantasy camps, I reconnected with guitarist Gary Hoey. We had met years before, but never really had an opportunity to know each other that well. We exchanged information, and sometime after that, Gary called me and said, Lita, I have a studio in my house. If you ever want to record here, you're more than welcome to. It would be about a year into the divorce ordeal before I took Gary up on his offer and headed to New Hampshire. 
I thought that getting out of the scene in studios in LA into a very peaceful place in the woods, which had a soothing, calming vibe, would do me some good. Gary's studio had a very homey feel to it. We allowed ourselves to feel that the music was right, because when you're alone like that, I think you really come to more of the truth in your work. When Gary and I started working together musically, we were finishing each other's sentences. We had many of the same influences, so when we connected, it was effortless. The first song we wrote and recorded was Branded, which was about the tattoos I had gotten while I was married. There were times when I would play a solo and Gary would say, wow, that's awesome. And we'd add something, and I'd say, whoa, Gary's guitar parts completed mine. The next song we wrote was Love to Hate You, which would turn out to be the happiest song on what would become the Living Like a Runaway album. We traded off licks and guitar parts in that song because as a duet, it felt right doing it that way. In A Song to Slit Your Wrist By, I played the first part of the guitar solo and then handed the guitar to Gary, and he played the second half. It got to the point that when we'd play back songs, I couldn't tell whether some parts were mine or Gary's. That's how connected we were musically. When I went back to Gary Hoey's house for the second time, we wrote The Mask in The Asylum. After working with Gary, I felt like I had just had the best sex of my life, through music. It was a creative thrill that I hadn't felt in 16 years. I loved it. Some nights I'd say, I'm not going to play guitar on this, and he'd say, Lita, you have to play guitar on this. He knew as well as I did that I had to make this the best thing I had ever done. My previous album, Wicked Wonderland, had damaged my credibility in the industry to such an extent that I needed to reset everyone's expectations. Sometimes we'd start recording and I'd ask to begin from the top. Sorry, can I do that again? Gary responded, Lita, you can do a hundred takes if you want. You're the artist. Slowly I gained confidence in myself after not playing or being in the studio for so long. After a decade and a half, I had to rediscover who Lita was, and Gary brought that out of me. It was such a different, positive feeling compared to the awful emotions I was dealing with during the divorce. It may have saved my life. I was experiencing extreme highs writing with Michael Dan Emig and Gary Hoey, and profound lows because I had to deal with the horrible feelings about my relationship with James and Rocco. Gary and his beautiful wife, Nicole, and their kids were a godsend in my life. He took me into his studio and his family, welcomed me into their home, and I was able to dump all the pain I was going through into my music. They were so wonderful to me. Nicole would make me blueberries, yogurts, and granola for breakfast, whatever she could get me to eat. My mind was always on my kids, so I didn't feel like eating much. It was usually coffee, and that was it. She kept trying to be my home cook and take care of me. One night, I helped Nicole make dinner. I showed her how to make the pasta sauce my mom had taught me to make all those years ago. It was so much fun. While we were working, Gary would call into the house, which was steps away from the studio, and Nicole would copy down notes and put them in a neat order so that I could use them for my lead vocals. I never wanted to leave. It felt like home. I fell in love with their children, who were the same ages as my boys, and they adored my dogs. I went back to Gary's many times. In each visit, we'd get into the groove of writing songs. I would lay down a vocal, and then Gary and I would put in the rest. Then we'd play the song back to Nicole and the kids. If Nicole wasn't in tears, or someone in the room wasn't in tears, or the teenage friends that Allison had over didn't like it, then we'd record it again. It always helped us out to hear the ideas that Nicole had. She was honest and would give input as to whether something was too slow, too much, not enough. She was as much a part of this record as Gary and I were. 
when we would get stuck on ideas, I'd call Michael Dan and say something like, I have a song idea about an angel, but it's become about the devil. A few seconds later, he'd sing a line like, Love don't come easy for a lonely soul like me. I find myself in trouble on a road to misery. I try to do the right thing, but I'm easily misled. I'm drawn to the dark side and the devil in my head. And I would be like, what the hell? Yes, that's brilliant. If I didn't know him as well as I do, I don't think I would have been able to write the album that, the way we did. Michael Dan and Gary Hoey and his family saw me through the entire record when a lot of people would have turned their backs on me and said, no, I don't want to work with Lita. She's too 80s. At this point, I had been out of the music scene for 20 years. When I returned, I had no idea where the music culture was since we never listened to the latest music on the island. I played what I wanted and not whatever was the flavor of the month. Just to make life easier, I didn't start listening to music other than my own when I lived in L.A., as far as I was concerned, I earned my right to play whatever the fuck I wanted to play, which was exactly what I did. In between writing sessions, I would go back to Florida to meet with attorneys, go to court, and most of all, to see my boys. I did that for almost a year as I wrote what would become my next album. I wish James and Rocco could have come up to New Hampshire to play with us in the snow and Gary's kids. My children had never experienced winter. I wanted to take them so badly, but the alienation continued. I was unable to speak to the boys on the phone or even email or text. I was blocked on Facebook. All communication was denied. This was not court-ordered. From my perspective, the legal system didn't care about my kids. My ex was allowed to take the children fishing to a country where U.S. laws do not apply, a place I knew they'd never come back from. If they do, I sure won't be told about it. The record was handed in to the label the same day my divorce was made final in February 2012. I came out of it with a good amount of money, but it could have been a lot more considering the millions of dollars worth of land we owned. But I just wanted to be free of my ex-husband, and I wanted the whole process to stop torturing the kids, so I accepted the shitty deal. The only thing I truly wanted was my children, and with the boys acting the way they were. Hello, and welcome back to TU Music. Today, we'll be reading Chapter 3 from Niall Rogers' memoir, Le Freak. Le Freak was published in 2011 by Spiegel and Grau. Narrating this chapter is Juwan and Jack. When the Greyhound first pulled into the East 7th Street Terminal in Los Angeles, I did a double take. Had we come full circle? Downtown LA felt just like Midtown New York, where a journey had originated days before. It was as if I'd just awakened from a cross-country dream and found myself in the same place I'd started. Even the summertime temperature was the same. I'd soon learned that the bus station that welcomed us to L.A. was in the section of town called Skid Row. No wonder it felt so much like home. It was cramped, smoggy, and teeming with the same urban detritus. Bums, hookers, runaways, cabs, newspaper boys, policemen, buses, and screaming fire engines. All I knew so well from New York. There was the same ratio of derelicts to working behind people as in the Port Authority bus terminal we'd just left behind. But that's where the similarity of New York ended. Instead of subways, my new town had trolleys, which they called streetcars. The Puerto Rican culture I knew so well back home had been swapped out for Mexican. The streets had south-of-the-border names like Alameda, Santa Fe, Alvaro, and Figaro. Taco stands were on every corner. En route to the house, we had been staying in until we got our own place. I saw highway signs directing motorists to destinations like San Pedro, Santa Monica, and Santa Ana. I'd read about Santa Ana fighting against Davy Crockett. 
He had been portrayed as an enemy of the United States in school when I was back in New York. Out here, they named the city after him. Now, that's impressive, I remember thinking. Out here, they named streets and cities after bad guys, too. Goody and I would have a helping hand in our strange new environment. My grandma, Lenora, had also come west a few months before us. Back home, her husband, Leroy Rogers, my biological father's dad, was terminally ill, and the Jack Frost Sugar Company, where they both worked, expected her to pay back the money they were spending on his hospital bills. Instead of paying, Lenora skipped town with her new boyfriend, Walter James Adams, a.k.a. Bill, a.k.a. Pretty Bill, who happened to be a master tailor and convicted murderer. Lenora changed her surname back to her maiden name, Claire, and dropped off Jack Frost's radar with her life savers intact. She sent Leroy extra money under the table until he died. Had she paid her employers back, it would have bankrupted her. Lenora was thrilled that Goody and I were joining her on the West Coast. Bill was less than pleased, but he knew it made Lenora happy. And happy is the only way you'd want Lenora to be if you had to deal with her, trust me. Lenora wasted no time laying down her rules to me. Without the intervention of my mother, her missionary work on me was going to be a lot easier. She made it clear I was going to continue attending Catholic school just as soon as Goody got settled. We found an apartment in a housing court. All the units faced a common yard filled with lush foliage like apricot and avocado trees, tropical cacti, and bushes filled with wildflowers and berries. Everybody could see the comings and goings of everybody else. St. Cecilia, named after the patron saint of musicians, was a local Catholic primary school in our district. When I checked into the school, I'd be going into the second grade, and yet again, I'd be checking in late. They didn't roll out the welcome mat for me the way that they had on my first day of school in the Bronx. No, these were not the same loving nuns who were so impressed with my precious reading skills. Actually, they were pretty cross with my grandmother and me for checking in at such a late date. The head of admissions pounced on Goody when she sensed her docile nature. I don't think we can accept this child here, the headmistress said. You don't have his records and he's not even your son. I'll never forget that. Nobody was more aware of the fact that Goody wasn't my mother than I. In the end, it was Lenora who got me admitted. Beyond being a raging bull, Lenora's in a very good steed with the Roman Catholic community, so she worked her black magic and got me in. Still, they didn't want me there, and I didn't want to be there. Our housing court was on the corner of Budlong and Vernon Avenues in the Exposition Park area of Los Angeles. It bordered a nicer area called the Historic West Adams District, Compared to the West Adams District's houses, where most of my fellow students came from, our place was bleak. It was one story high and made of adobe-colored stucco. There wasn't a designated play area, and no other kids lived there. The West Adams District's houses were grand and palatial in comparison. Their gardens were all beautifully manicured, and during Christmas season, cars would drive through the neighborhood to see the magnificently displayed lights. I don't have a single fond memory of my L.A. Catholic school classmates. I only remember feeling unhappy and receiving more punishment than the other kids, most of which came from standard periodical school playbook, ruler slaps on the palms or knuckles, standing with your arms outstretched, mimicking Jesus on the cross with books in your upturned hands, or worst of all, swats. These were administered with a handball paddle or a cricket bat and delivered by a teacher with a full-on Babe Ruth swing. I acted out and was sent to a classroom with older kids as a punishment. 
Instead of learning with kids my own age, I was sitting in a corner or standing in front of the class holding books and occasionally wearing a conic dunce hat. I hated it. One night I saw a film called I Accuse. The story of Jewish military captain Alfred Dreyfus, who was wrongly convicted of treason. I projected his story onto mine as the explanation for my misery. I started to role play even more, daydreaming, fantasizing, and scoring it in my head almost all day long. I pretended the nuns had convicted me of something that I didn't do. I imagined that St. Cecilia was Devil's Island and I had to escape. The school continued to dole out cruel and unusual punishment, but I kept thinking about how was I going to break out, which certainly made things a lot more fun. One day I decided to stop plotting and acting. My action plan was as complicated as D-Day, but I had every detail worked out. Every morning, Goody and I left home together and walked to the bus stop. Goody worked for Lenora, who had a small business cleaning homes and offices. Normally, she'd wait there and I'd go west toward Normandy Avenue to school. Today, however, I sat with her until her bus came and then sent her off. Junior, why aren't you going to school? She asked in her trusting voice. I am going. I lied. But they changed the time our classes start and I don't have to be there until 9.30. Goody, of course, believed me. She didn't think I was capable of lying. She was happy just to sit with me at the bus stop. I waited until she boarded the bus and watched it rumble out of sight. Then I fished out my key, turned around, and headed back inside our apartment. It was that easy. I skipped to the kitchen, filled the pot with milk, and brought it to a simmer. I measured two heaping tablespoons of Nestle's Quick chocolate powder into a giant glass and poured in the warm milk. Then I turned on the TV, adjusted the rabbit ears antenna to get the picture sharp, and kicked back like Dean Martin with a cocoa martini. I watched in a trance until there was nothing good on. Around 10 a.m., I went outside to play by myself. I was running through the bushes with my tree branch spear and reciting dialogue from Tarzan when a man emerged from the apartment across from ours. He really caught me off guard. I didn't plan on running into anyone. I thought every adult started working around the same time as Goody did. Hey, kid, he said. What you doing? You live around here? Yes, sir, right over there, I said cautiously pointing to the rear apartment. My name is Gregory. I always used my middle name to try and fit in with the other kids. At the same time, Niall only generated dirty African river jokes. How come you're not in school, the man asked. I go to Catholic school and we don't have regular hours, I said in my polished New York accent. Then I confidently asked, where do you live and what do you do, sir? I live here and I'm on the county. I had no idea what that meant. On the county? It sounded official, like he was an FBI agent or a cop. Thinking I was busted, I tried to flatter him and said, You're probably important doing that, sir. He burst out laughing. Yeah, I'm important, he said with a laugh. I sit around here all day and don't go nowhere. I'm just headed over there to get a little taste. Finally, here was something I recognized and understood. I know what a little taste was. In the end, I'd find out he was a wino named Ernest, living on welfare, the county. After our little chat, he waved by and sauntered across the street to the liquor store. I wasn't in trouble, but decided our house was safer. Back in the apartment, I watched Lucille Ball, Loretta Young, Father Knows Best, and other reruns the rest of the day. This was amazing. It was much better than school. And if you asked me, I'd say I learned a hell of a lot more from the TV. When Goody came home after work, she was none of the wiser. I played hooky and got away with it. I was jumping up and down inside. 
I didn't think they wanted me at school anyway. It was a win-win. The next day, Goody went to work and I followed the same plan. But this time while I was playing outside, a woman who said she was a substitute teacher questioned me. I ran the same rap I used on Goody. But the teacher often worked at St. Cecilia and she wasn't buying it. She wound up calling my school and for a short time I was in a doghouse with Lenora and Goody. As luck would have it, I had another asthma attack and needed to stay home for a few days. When I returned to school with a doctor's note from my grandma, the nuns all seemed much nicer, and this didn't go unnoticed by the dreamer and schemer inside of me. It wasn't long before I was playing hooky again, but now I got Ernest, the wino next door, to forge a note that I would keep in my pocket just in case I got caught. I thought it would allow me to do anything and go anywhere, like the letters of transit in Casablanca. I dictated the contents and can still remember what the note said as if it were yesterday. To whom it may concern, please excuse my grandson Niles absence from school. He was suffering from an asthma attack and had to stay home. Thank you kindly, Elise Clarice Goodman. Thus began the most exciting 75 days of my life. To make a little extra money, on school holidays, I sometimes worked with Goody or Lenora. At the time, Lenora's business had a cleaning contract with the Franklin Life Insurance Company, located at the corner of Wilshire and Western Boulevards. I knew to get there by surface transit. One day, however, I took the bus on Wilshire in the opposite direction, and when it got to the Pershing Square, I got off. Wow. I was back in the skid row near the Greyhound bus terminal. When I arrived, I was blown away at the sight of all the movie theaters, which remind me of 42nd Street and the Grindhouse Theaters of the South Bronx. Only this was that to the 10th power. I've been dreaming about this day since our bus pulled into downtown L.A. Downtown L.A. was better than Disneyland and Coney Island steeplechase combined. After exploring a while, I go to a movie theater box off window and say, One children's ticket, please. They rarely ask me, Why aren't you in school? But if they did and I had to resort to the asthma note, I would tell them. When I woke up this morning, I was very sick. When the attack went away, it was too late to go to school. It always worked. I could tell the story to cops, and it seemed to work even better. Sometimes they would escort me to the Skid Row movie theater. At least once, they even dropped me off in a car. There was no ratings, and anybody could see a film they wanted. For the next two and a half months, I saw almost every movie that was released many times over. The trick was never go to the same theater too soon. This was easy because there was a seemingly endless number of grindhouses on Skid Row. In those days, they didn't even turn theaters over, so you could stay in one all day. It was a common practice to arrive at the theater anytime you wanted. If it was in the middle of the film, you'd simply wait until it came around again to see what you'd miss. You could sit for six to eight hours before the part you missed cycled back. It was fantastic. I always went home at the same time I would have had I actually gone to school. This had many advantages. If the truant officer visited and left a letter, good old Ernest or another wino in need of a taste would write and mail back the letter explaining my absence for as little as the 10 or 15 cents. In those days, you could purchase a small bottle of Thunderbird wine for not that much. One day, Goody got sick with the flu, and it was horrible. She had a high fever and was bedridden. I asked her if she wanted me to stay with her to help out, but she said, I don't want you to miss school. I'll be all right. I left the house and headed downtown to see the sword and the dragon. A character, the wind demon, reminded me of my asthma and made me worry about Goody. I wanted to go home and take care of her, but I couldn't show up before 3.30. When I finally got home, I found not only Goody, but Lenora. And judging by the way she glared at me, I could tell she wasn't happy. 
Also in our living room were a truant officer, a policeman or two, and someone from St. Cecilia. Excessive truancy, they called it. Who had written the excuse letters in response to the truant officer's summonses? They accused Goody of turning a blind eye. I insisted that I had acted alone. I knew that if I told on Ernest or any of my Wano friends, they'd be in deep trouble. They'd be contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And I'd seen enough Cagney films to know you don't rat. Everyone knew I was lying. They agreed I should be sent back to my mother. A punishment in their eyes. But earlier, Lenora had given me a serious whipping with an ironing cord that had left painful welts in my body. My mother would have never done that, no matter how mad she got. I couldn't wait to get back to her. And I was right. The postpartum depression that had turned Beverly into a potential murderer had at long last disappeared. In fact, she felt so well, I soon found out that she'd had a third child, Tony, my second half-brother, with yet another man. So at age seven, I was put on TWA Super G Constellation to fly by myself from L.A. to New York City. We hit a bad storm over St. Louis, and I urinated in my pants. I was cold, frightened, and miserable. I peed on myself again during another encounter with air pockets, and discovered that I momentarily got warm and slightly more comfortable. I realized that I was looking forward to the next time my bladder filled, and to the peace and warmth that accompanied the release. But soon again, I was freezing in the air-conditioned, pressured cabin, lonely and ashamed. When I finally arrived the next morning at LaGuardia Airport, my mother was waiting for me. She freaked out when she got her first glimpse of me as the crew walked me off the plane. I was scared stiff, cold, and soaking wet in my pants. My face tear-stained. Oh God, Pud, what happened, my mother said. I don't know, I replied in a timid monotone. The response was becoming my standard explanation for all the idiosyncratic habits I was developing. And it was true. <laughs>